Good morning, everyone. So if you remember, possibly, on Ash Wednesday, I proposed that this Lent, along with whatever we're choosing to give up, that we also make the decision to go in search of something, search of an answer to a very, very important question, a question that a lot of us may never really think about. Who do I believe Jesus Christ is? Or you could phrase it another way, who is Jesus Christ? The center of our religion, the center of our faith. What would be our answer to that? And so my hope is that during the Sundays of Lent, I'll be able to address that question, partially according to the Gospels, according to myself, but hopefully offering an answer that might be able to help you better understand who Jesus is. Well, the gospel that we are going to read at all the other masses, except for the one today, the one today we heard was the gospel of the Samaritan woman, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. We read two gospels today because the third Sunday is the day of the first scrutiny for those individuals who are coming into the church, about to be baptized. It's a very ancient practice of having prayers and intercessions to prepare them to become members of the body of Christ. The other gospel that we read this morning at the other masses deals with the theme of repentance. Repentance and conversion from sin. It's the one where Jesus mentions that a, a tower fell on some people. And he says, these people that died this way, they weren't bigger sinners than anyone else. But if you don't convert, if you don't repent from your sin, you are going to end up with a much worse fate. Much worse fate. And so Jesus is calling people to conversion, talking about that repentance from sin that's at the heart of the gospel message. But why? What's sort of the impetus for conversion here? Very clearly, it is a fear of punishment. I don't want a tower to fall on me. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to go to H-E double hockey sticks. And so as a result, we convert. We repent from sin. This is what the church traditionally has called imperfect contrition. Contrition from sin, being sorry, but it's imperfect because the real reason you are saying I'm sorry is because you don't want to necessarily suffer the negative consequences. And so because I do not want to have that punitive thing done against me, then guess what? I'm going to behave correctly. Imperfect. But just because it's imperfect doesn't mean it's bad or ineffective. In fact, I'm sure many of you from your childhood realize that imperfect contrition can be very effective. I used to go to Mass. I've even thought about cutting up. Or I was kneeling down and I'd bend my behind to touch that end of that pew. I knew that I was going to be punished. I was going to get that behind whipping. Or first I was going to get the, the laser eyes to make sure that I knew I shouldn't do that. And so when I thought about that, I said, oh, I better not do it. And then after I got the whip, and I got a couple of them, I really repented deeply in my heart. Because, not that I was upsetting my parents, but because I did not want to get punished. And so although it can be very effective in our own spiritual lives, in converting from sin, focusing only on that, 
only during our lives saying, I don't want to sin, I want to repent because I don't want to get punished, can lead to some negative consequences. One of them you can sort of see God as a tyrant waiting to strike you down, waiting to punish you for every little thing you do. You could also say, all right, I know how far I can push the envelope before I get punished, so I'm going to continue doing that, continue sinning, but I'm not going to get punished. So I'm going to see what is the, the minimum, the smallest amount I can get away with. And then finally, and probably worse, is that eventually if we only think I need to follow these rules because I don't want to get punished, we can see the rules as almost arbitrary. They become oppressive. Why do I have to follow these rules? What is the reason behind them? We see the rules, but not the rule maker. And as a result, this type of repentance is valuable, but it is imperfect. It's not the perfect kind. But fortunately, the gospel we hear today, the gospel of the Samaritan woman, is an example of perfect contrition. What do I mean by that? How do I explain it? Well, here we have Jesus sitting at the well, and this Samaritan woman, who we see as a sinner, who has and continues to have some illicit relationships, comes to encounter Jesus. And through the dialogue, through the conversation, something happens in her heart, and she repents from her sin. So much so that she goes back into her town and says, you got to meet this guy, Jesus. He told me everything I did. My life is completely changed. She's repented from her sin, not out of a fear of punishment, but as a result of a relationship with Jesus. As I said a few weeks ago, conversation leads to conversion. She converted because of the conversation she had with the merciful Lord. And so she exemplifies perfect contrition, not out of fear of punishment, but realizing through this conversation, through this realization, that she was hurting the true bridegroom of her soul, that she was called to be friends with him, to love him, and that when she sinned, she alienated herself from him and from that gift of the life-giving spirit. This is what we call perfect contrition, that we repent out of love for the person that we hurt through our sin. We don't want to sin, and we're sorry for our sins because our sins hurt God. They hurt the Lord. They, they break that relationship that we ought to have with him. And so as a result, we are sorry for what we've done, and we don't want to do it again. Think of the times that maybe accidentally or intentionally you hurt someone you really, really loved. What was your reaction? Once you realize it and you see the pain on their face, your heart is often moved. And you may start crying and saying, I'm so, so sorry. Please forgive me. You're not worried about what retribution might come. You're worried because you broke that relationship. Because you hurt the person whom you love and who arguably loves you. This is easy, though, when it comes to our relationships with other people. We can see the effects of our sin, of the things that we've done wrong, but when it comes to God, it's a little more difficult. 
is God is true spirit. We don't see the effects. And so it can become very easy for us to be tempted to think that sin against God is a victimless crime. Or even if we do understand God as our Father, we think, ah, He's our Father. He's going to forgive us. He can handle it. It's really no big deal. But the reality is, sin is a big deal. And because of the incarnation, God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, God has a face. We can see the Father in Jesus. And we know what our sin does. The impact it has against the person we ought to love. Because we can look on the cross. It's there. What we are journeying towards this Easter. Jesus came in order that he might die for our sins. He took upon what we deserved out of love in his own body. And through his blood we are saved. We all know this is the truth. But it becomes embodied in Jesus. So when we look on the cross, when we can imagine Jesus there, we understand or should understand what our sin does. The impact of the sin, the damage it causes. And it should lead to contrition of heart because we realize that we're hurting someone. And that's where I want to propose Another answer to that question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is not just some concept in our mind. He's not words on a page. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sent by the Father, who is a living person. Divine person with human body and soul, intellect and will, but he is real. He's alive in his resurrected body today. That's what we're hoping to celebrate on Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, that he died, but he's still alive. And because of that, because he's a person, because he's real, unlike Buddha, unlike Muhammad, unlike other divinities and other cultures, even though Muhammad and Buddha technically aren't divinities, we can relate to Jesus. We can have a relationship with him. We can know him. We can love him. And we can avoid sin because we know what it does to him. We know what sin does to Christ. We know what sin does to God. And so we would never want to push the envelope because we would never want to do anything to break that relationship and to hurt Jesus. But here's the difficult challenge. How is it that we can come to know Jesus as a person? How can we have that relationship with him? How can we come to know him as a friend and to love him? Well, there's only one way. And that is what I talked about last week, what I talked about all during Advent. You can't know Jesus as a living person if you don't pray. And I'm not just talking about reciting novenas or saying a few prayers. These things aren't bad. But really spending time committed to developing a relationship to getting to know the Lord, to giving time to Him. can't develop any relationship. You can't get to know a person if you give Him the last two minutes of your day and you're falling asleep while you're talking to Him. There's got to be a commitment. It's got to be something we invest in, and it's got to be something we want. 
And so we can encounter Jesus, develop that relationship through prayer. Primarily Mass and the adoration, and adoration. We come to encounter him in the Eucharist, encountering him in the Word through our own meditation and mental prayer and the dialogue we have with him in our mind. But we have to have it committed. But a lot of people will say, Father, you've preached about this over and over and over again. But how do you have a relationship with someone you can't see? How can you talk to and come to know someone that you can't see? And that's real. Very easy for me to have a relationship with any of you because I can see you. I hear your voice. There is a true dialogue. But in prayer, so often it feels like a monologue. You just talk in the air. No Jesus is supposed to be there, but it's difficult because you can't see him. And that's where you've got to take sort of a step back, I think, and realize it is possible for us to have true relationships with people that A, we can't see, and with people that we cannot even necessarily hear or speak to. These things are important for developing a relationship, but once we come to know the Lord, once we spend time with him in prayer, we can come to be with him in silence, knowing that he's there, deep in our hearts, speaking to him and saying, Lord, this is difficult, but I love you, and I still want to spend this time, even though I might not be able to hear what you're telling me, even though I might not be able to see you. Think of people that you know and you love, and you can in your mind right now in your heart think of them that may be far away, somewhere else in the country, overseas. You can picture them in your mind. You can feel the love in your heart. But just because they're not there doesn't mean you don't have a relationship. And in fact, thinking of them and remembering them makes the relationship stronger the next time you get to see them. But also the example I always use, imagine you're sitting with a friend, maybe one who's sick in the hospital. They can't talk to you. They can't see you. Does it mean that the friendship and relationship is gone? No, you can still sit there. They can be aware of your presence. You don't have to talk, but your simple presence means so much, and <clears throat> that relationship can certainly grow. <clears throat> so that prayer and silence, that being with the Lord, it's a relationship, a spiritual one, it's not about what you say, it's not about what you do, but it's about spending time with Jesus. Spending time and making that commitment, and he's the one who's going to act. He's the one who's going to initiate. He's the one who's going to reveal himself, and it may be a day, it may be three weeks, you may hear a voice, you may have an apparition, you may have just an instinct of the Spirit, but you are going to know that he is a living person, and he is alive and active in your life. And so, let's pray for that true conversion in our own hearts that comes not primarily out of fear of punishment, but because we know Jesus. We know what our sins do to him, and we never want to do that. But instead, developing that relationship, being his friend, until one day we hope to see him face to face in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.